Good morrow to you all. You have fallen on bad times. Brought to you by Royal Holloway's Shakespeare Society. You join me, Cassie Dixon. And me, Jack Hardman, as we bear some bardy truths. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Bard Times. Today, we are going to be talking to James Shannon. Say hello, James. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Very good. Um, <laughs> and we're going to be talking about his show, If Janiah, and his recent show, The Fever. And any other any other works that are coming up for you, James? In general, James, how are you doing? Uh, I'm In general, I'm doing really good, thanks, Jack. Uh, I just got Iphigenia out of the way. Uh, so I'm feeling uh, free as a bird, honestly. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my time without constant rehearsals or <laughs> editing or meetings. Um, I suppose yeah, I have to true. get on with my degree. Okay. Well, I I mean, Iphigenia, uh, so that's that's your most recent, your most recent endeavour uh, with Drama Sock. How do you think it went? I think personally it went really well. Um, it's It was a very odd process for me um, because when you're directing an audio drama, I don't think it really sinks in until later down the line how much it's not in your hands. Yeah. I mean, yes, uh, directing and going over the scenes and getting people's performances really, um, you know, at their peak uh, is the most important part. But once everyone sent their lines in... Um, there's nothing I can do, really. Uh, it's all down to the editors and uh, Matteo, who composed our music. Uh, gorgeous. Yeah, incredible music, by the way. Incredible music. Uh, an hour and a half of music, um, which is the same amount as most film scores. Really uh, overstepping. Um, I did not ask him to do an hour and a half of music. I'd like to get that out there. Um, but yeah, I think it, it went well, but it, it's a very odd process as a director to just sort of sit and be almost in the same boat as everyone else uh, waiting yeah. for um, it to come out. For those of you that don't know, uh, Iphigenia is a an ancient Greek play which uh, is set right at the end of the... I mean, you know what, James, you, you, you go for it. Yeah, so there's two Iphigenia plays. There's Iphigenia in Aulis, um, which tells the story of uh, the sacrifice of Iphigenia, which is very very commonly accepted myth. Uh, it's referenced in the Odyssey, the Iliad, um, in loads of vases. Uh, Iphigenia among the Taurians is Euripides playing with myth a little bit um, and saying, what if she wasn't, she didn't die, and that Artemis... Uh, protector of girls whisked her away and so this play sort of acts as an epilogue to uh, the Oresteia, the story of the house of Atreus um, not just to that story though but the story almost serves as an epilogue to the entirety of Greek myth there's that mm. scene in the middle where uh, Iphigenia is asking Orestes what's happened to all the great heroes of Greece Odysseus, yeah, going, Calchas, Agamemnon. Uh, yeah, she's dead. He's dead. He's he's lost. He's on he's the Odyssey. In the wormhole. <laughs> he's on another planet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a goodbye to the world of Argos, of Mycenae, of Delphi, the world of gods and heroes and you know horrible monsters. Um, and at the end, Orestes and Iphigenia, who are the last two heroes of Greek myth. Uh, if you don't count uh, Odysseus's bastard son who shows up in um, uh, a lost epic. Um, 
those last two heroes of Greek myth don't go back to Argos, they don't go back to Mycenae, but they go to Athens, uh, where there is now democracy. And it's that transition from the world of myth and heroes and monsters into the world that the audience knows and recognizes. Yeah, because obviously it's, I, I mean, I it's no, well, I'm not going to hide it. I was obviously in Iphigenia. And, um, and a fab job you did too. Oh, stop it. Stop it, you. <laughs> yeah, so obviously being a part of it, you well, you don't you don't really appreciate how much it is on you as an actor until you kind of get to the actual sitting down and recording it. Because obviously uh, the way you worked with us in rehearsals was quite collaborative. Uh, yeah, something I really emphasised in rehearsals, um, particularly with uh, the two actors who played the messenger roles, those being the herdswoman and the attendant, um, it's something I just wanted to emphasise is that this is not a commercial show. Um, we did not charge entry. Um, it was not there to generate profit for Drama Sock. And so something I really wanted to emphasize was that this was absolutely the show of the actors. I wanted to bring their ideas, their interpretations, and uh, really discuss the characters because this is a 2,500-year-old text Yeah, that's been yeah fed through a translator. But... Um, and so people have so many ideas, so many things to take on board. And so, yeah, I think it's you've got to be collaborative with Greek drama because otherwise it, it loses its heart. Um, so why why put it on now? Is there anything in particular that spoke to you about the about the play? Iphigenia in Tauris speaks to a lot of young people who feel out of control in the world. Uh, or feel like they have no control over the world around them. Uh, we're presented particularly with two major characters, um, those being Iphigenia herself and Orestes, whose entire lives are just almost entirely at the whims of the gods. It's It's people who are constantly buffeted and used as the pawns of higher beings, and they don't really have a say in that. Mm. And I, th I think that speaks to a lot of people in the younger generation right now who also feel let down by their elders. This play definitely speaks to young people who are definitely more conscious about the stakes that are at hand. Isn't that interesting, though, that in the end, it's it's actually the gods that save Iphigenia and Orestes? Exactly. A lot of uh, Greek writers sort of hint at it's only really Sophocles in his uh, Prometheus Bounds who really gets to the heart of it, is that the gods are tyrants. They are absolute rulers, and they can be benevolent, and they can rescue you, but they will never bow to the whims of popular demand. I mean, I, I obviously I know stories like uh, what happens with uh, Medusa and the Minotaur and, and that kind of thing, but I, I, in terms of knowing... Things like uh, the ins and outs of the Oz the Odyssey or the Iliad or or uh, anything with Iphigenia or Orestes. This ha having an almost gateway like this is actually, I think, it's a an extremely accessible play because it's all those things you've kind of heard people talk about in general about uh, Greek myth. It kind of ties them all together. Absolutely, and um, I think. Greek theatre in particular is a great gateway for people to start exploring the world of Greek myth. Um, because while you can pick up a book of Greek myths that will have them all written out in nice little little stories, 
Uh, the world of Greek myth is confusing. There's about 50 versions of each one. Um, some people have about 12 names, depending on which version you're reading. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to remember as well that tragedy for so many... Uh, we had an interesting discussion with uh, Dr. Nick Lowe the other day about whether tragedy was the death of myth, in that it sort of codified mm. it and said, this is what happened here, this is what happened here, this is the correct version of events. And so the world of Greek myth is constantly changing, but theatre is an amazing way of engaging with it. Talking about kind of uh, the death of myth through tragedy, you've recently directed a play that deals with tragedy. Yeah, The the Fever was a production I did with Ruckus Theatre Company, which I'm the secretary of. It was a recorded performance, as it would be shown to audiences, it's a 90-minute monologue. Just an, an incredible challenge. The I, I didn't actually manage to catch it, unfortunately, because I was swamped with work at the time. But how, how do you think it, it went in general? I think uh, the question of how the fever went, and a few people have asked me it, it's always going to be an odd one for me because it's not abstract. It is a person talking. And the, the challenge for me was find an actor and just get them through it, work through it with them, so that someone talking at you for 90 minutes can be engaging. Honestly, big ups to uh, Karen. I don't know whether whether she'll be listening. But um, but yeah, no, just a really, a really good job there. Amazing to be able to do that. How did the process of that then work? Was it just you and Karen in a room, just kind of bashing it out? So when you're doing... Uh... Not only a one-person play, but a one-person play where the character is by no means an extraordinary character. They are very much your average person. Uh, we don't want enormous theatrics. This is a regular person presented as a regular person. And so a lot of, a lot of it came down to instinct and just guiding Karen through the text. She has a particular skill as a performer, which is identifying emotional beats which is something we worked a lot on and just working out where those beats are, where the emotion goes up, down, where the energy goes up and down. Uh, anyone who saw The Fever, um, it talks about incredibly harrowing things. Um, we had about 10 trigger warnings on there. Um, a lot of it was just uh, doing dramaturgical work and saying, when you're talking about such and such massacre, you're referencing this actual thing that happened. Yeah. Nothing that was, those of you who saw the fever, nothing that was described in the fever is fictional. Everything happened. It's an incredible act of naturalism in general. Because uh, I've seen the this play elsewhere. Um, I found it online when this play was announced because I was fascinated by it. Um, and and it is, it is an incredibly harrowing performance in general. Uh, well, not performance, but... The stuff it talks about uh, incredibly deep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so after that, both of these uh, projects have just finished. Obviously, you were directing on both of them, uh, and you've mentioned that you are the secretary of Ruckus. Obviously, you're also social sec for the Holloway Players. Uh, so, quick shout out to the Holloway Players. They're doing wonderful work. Go check them out. But also, uh, you have done a lot of acting on. Uh, at the university and in general, yep. you've played uh, Orestes in your own version of Iphigenia and Taurus. You were in Coriolanus. 
Yes, uh, Alphidius I played. Yes, yeah, Alphidius in Coriolanus last year. Um, and you've you've done a lot a lot more elsewhere, and you have produced quite a lot on, at the university. So, out of those roles, which one do you think speaks to you the most? Which one do you think you are drawn to? You would the first one where you'd go, okay, hi, I'm James. I'm an actor. I'm a director. I I would never say hi, I'm James. I'm blank. But I I think if it's going to be anything, I would follow that with director. Um, I enjoy acting, but I don't particularly rate myself as an actor. Um, and producing, while it's given me in, like invaluable skills, both in the theatre world and in life in general, producing is not as much a passion of mine uh, as it is something I'm good at and something I'm willing to lend my skills to. Fair. Um, but directing is the one that gets me, the one that really gets me up in the morning. The one, yeah. Um, the one that just invigorates me both intellectually and just in terms of my energy yeah good yeah it, it is just it's one of those roles you just kind of have to give everything yeah to. i think my uh the thing that i get most excited about when it comes to directing i love all of it and i love working with actors and i love seeing the finished project um something i've realized i have uh i i get most excited about is those initial stages of coming up with the concepts and just solving problems saying well if this is the world of the play if this is what's going on if this is the angle we're taking what does that mean for stage management what does that mean for music what does that mean for the lighting the sound the costume um i i think the reason i find directing so invigorating is that you don't need to know everything um and that's advice i'd give to anyone who wants to try out directing you don't need to know everything you just need to know your crew well enough um, to <laughs> to be able to, to lean on them slightly to tie them all together into a nice little knot. Um, it's about taking all these elements, taking the costume, and making sure the costume amplifies uh, the same effects that you want from the sound, from the the acting, from everything. Yeah. Talking of future projects, uh, is there anything in particular that you are don't? If you aren't liberty to say, don't don't. But um, if is there anything currently in the old brain box that you're thinking of going towards? Um, I'm currently stage managing a production of Romeo and Juliet, uh, which will be performed at the Cockpit Theatre just before Christmas. Uh, so if you're like me and have been desperately missing going to see live theatre, please check that out. Um, tickets are available on the Cockpit website. In regards to directing... Uh, I've taken a, a short break from projects because after doing two at once or three at once, <laughs> slightly fried. <laughs> I need some time to let my ears cool down. Uh, but I've I've got some ideas. Uh, anyone at the Iphigenia premiere, uh, Professor Edith Hall brought up Oxyrhinus four one three, the so-called uh, Chariton mime, nouned among classical scholarship uh, as being an odd adaptation of. Uh, Iphigenia among the Tarians, but with a fart machine. Um, but there's also things I've been I've been working on a sort of intermittently for a while now. I've been working on two adaptations. Um, I'm, I'm about halfway through an adaptation I've been writing of the Oresteia, uh, which I've called the Erastia, um, which refocuses the story on Pylades, uh, who is a wonderful character who, in the original Oresteia, is given one line. 
uh, and I thought let let's do better than that. Um, I'm also uh, adapting um, Alexandra Kollontai's uh, A Great Love either into an audio format or a physical production format, but that's a new project and that's not right. something anyone should be getting excited about anytime soon. Just something that's kind of bouncing around. Yeah, for now I'm lying in bed eating cake uh, Good. and enjoying uh, the moment of rest. Yeah, and respite. And just letting letting your work speak for itself for a little bit because it is they're, they're two incredible pieces of art and uh, people should definitely go check them out. Where can people access Iphigenia? Uh So at present, uh, Iphigenia is still uploading uh, to YouTube. Good. Um, uh, which is remarkable. Um, it, it just speaks for um, how just larger file it is. Yeah. Uh, every minute it uploads is a minute of work we've put in. Think of it that way. Um, uh, so that will be going up on Royal Holloway Drama Society's YouTube channel. Okay. So, obviously, you've worked on many shows as uh, at the uni in general. Um, which one would you say you was your favourite? If if you had to choose one, as as a producer, director, um, actor in general, which one would you settle on? Who can I make enemies of? Um, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm actually going to throw out. So I said earlier I don't really enjoy producing, uh, and that's quite mm-hmm. true. Uh, however, I would say that the show I've most enjoyed working on was uh, Savoy Opera Society's production of Princess Ida uh, uh, last spring, which was unfortunately cut short. Yes, unfortunately um, cancelled. Yes, purely because I I think this serves as a cautionary tale and a uh, a lesson to everyone thinking of putting together a show. Um, the level of familiarity and communication that the crew had with each other was just lovely. Um, there was a bouncy atmosphere in every meeting um, and every interaction we had with each other. Um, I think something that I'd say about Princess Ida, which really made it stand out as a crewing experience for me, was that... Um, and this is probably the biggest piece of advice I can give to anyone putting together a team. Everyone in it just gelled with each other. People can learn skills. They can learn how to DSM. They can learn how to produce. They can learn how to whatever. But if they don't fit together as a unit... If they don't get on, nothing's going to work. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be friends, but it just means they have to be able to communicate efficiently. Oh, exactly. It's, It's the same as in any workplace. Um... And I, I think that's something I enjoyed massively. I couldn't agree more, actually. Thinking back to um, when I directed Love Labour's Lost, I think one of the big things with that was, or one of the big things that I enjoyed with that was the uh, affection that I had for every single member of my crew and the ability to kind of bounce off all of them. And when a crew is kind of well bound together like that, you can create a show it doesn't matter whether a show it has um not enough time or or uh has kind of been thrown together if your crew works together and can work together it is incredibly it it can be still an incredibly effective performance absolutely and i i think that's something people often forget at the university level 
especially if you know you're not putting things together for an actual degree is at the society level people come together to put shows on to enjoy themselves and as cast member as a crew member as a committee member your number one your number and number two responsibilities are that everyone's having an enjoyable time it doesn't necessarily matter there's no such thing as objectivity when it comes to theater but it doesn't matter necessarily how um how well put together how neat how tidy it is as long as someone can look at a show they've done and say i'm glad i was in that and i'm glad people saw it you have succeeded yeah um i couldn't agree more that's what matters yeah exactly i I honestly couldn't agree more so just quickly on to the news of the week so this is a section we do every week where we talk about uh one or two pieces of news that particularly stand out and this week it has been announced that johnny depp is obviously going to be stepping down as grindelwald from the fantastic beast films and i wanted to ask you where you stand on the general idea of recasting actors midway through a series of films Obviously, Harry Potter in particular has already done this multiple times, but I wanted to see where you stood on the, on that idea. Generally, as long as no one's being hurt, the main question is one of respect. When someone has, as in the case of uh, the recasting of the role of Dumbledore in Harry Potter, for instance, uh, when a character ha- or an actor has died... Yeah. Um, I think the main question should be one of respect and one of what would the actor want. Um, I think it's difficult with adaptations in particular um, because it is a question of do you have the right to recast that role? And uh, in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna come out and say I think there should be more recasting in certain roles. Uh, I, I I think at the same time though certain certain pieces of media have made it a staple of recasting and re-energizing um i think i mean james bond is a good example of where the recasting is part of the excitement of it yes exactly true or something like doctor who where they've actually worked it in where they recast the actors every three four years Doctor who's a really interesting example uh of uh recasting in that there were no plans to have the Doctor be a character who can switch faces when uh, he suffers mortal wounds uh, until uh, William Hartnell's health began to fade um, and he uh, they made the decision, I think, until the casting of Jodie Whittaker in the role, no matter what you think of uh, the actual uh, standard of the show at present, um, they hadn't made full use of that yeah they hadn't actually they'd kind of gone the same the same route over and yeah. over again um who's the doctor it's a it's a white man um for some reason uh <laughs> alien with shape-shifting abilities yeah. always a white man always um, a white man. until now um I, c- I couldn't agree more actually and that's a really good point about I mean, just in general, your point about recasting, about a, a way to reinvigorate yeah. and kind of take a franchise in a completely different uh, route. I mean, look at look at the amount of reboots that are happening at the moment um, in film in general, and you'll see exactly kind of if if someone can recast an entire show, what is the problem in recasting one person? In fact, there's certain roles where I wish there had been. Uh conscious casting brought in i mean um 
Twin Peaks is a good example for those of you who don't know. Uh, there is uh, a character called Denise Richards uh, in Twin Peaks uh, who is a trans woman. And when Twin Peaks came out, uh, this uh, trans character who uh, is a very high-ranking FBI agent, a trans woman in a position of authority, that's a really interesting cultural moment. Them being trans is not presented as a joke. The main issue is that this trans woman was played by David Duchovny, um, who is cisgender man. You know, I, yeah. I would say, as, as a cis man, uh, it's not my place to say. Um, yes, obviously, we're, we're very aware. We've, I think both of us are very yeah. aware of our position of privilege in this situation. But it, it was a, a very interesting role that um, you know, I've spoken to people who it does mean a lot to. However, when they did a return to that show, I think they missed a real opportunity by not recasting that role to actually be played by a trans woman. You have to change with the audiences. And if that means recasting, that means recasting. I couldn't agree more, yeah. Okay, well, on, on that on that note, um, would you like to... So I'll give you a chance to plug uh, your shows. Yes, shows to plug. So as I said, Romeo and Juliet uh, will be performed between the 16th and the 20th of December at the Cockpit Theatre in Marlebone. Um, please get your tickets. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Um, there's a long list of trigger warnings at the beginning. Please check that out as well before you make any purchases. Other shows to plug. Um, I'd like to plug the Holloway Players, which uh, uses audience stimuli uh, to create funny uh, improvised scenes. Uh, due to the pandemic, we're not doing our bi-weekly shows, unfortunately. However, we are still running our regular sessions uh, on Wednesdays and Sundays from uh, 6 till 9 over Zoom. Um, you do not have to be a member to come along. Uh, you can just come along, try it out, see if you like it. Brilliant. So, James, I do have to ask this. What is your favourite Shakespeare play? Uh, I think of those I've engaged with, I'd probably say Twelfth Night is my favourite. Okay. Um, I think if anyone saw or was part of Iphigenia, they'll know that I love that glorious place in between comedy and tragedy, which I like to call tromedy. <laughs> okay, good. Very good. I think that Twelfth Night uh, very much rests in that place. And as a director, it gives you so many options. Yeah. I've got to say Twelfth Night as my favourite, um, mostly because, as well, I've seen bad productions of many Shakespeare plays. I've seen very few bad productions of Twelfth Night. Fair play. Well, I think that's a nice way to end that point. And that's a wrap for this week's episode. So thank you so much for coming on, James. You're more than welcome. It's been an absolute delight. That's that's good. I'm, I'm so glad. And uh, thank you all for joining me this week for Bard Times. This has been Jack Hardman. Stay safe. And in the words of the Bard himself, love all, trust few, and do wrong to none. <laughs>